Let's pray together. Now, Father, we as we bow over your word and exult over your word, as hard as this word is, as sad as this word is, and as glorious as this word is, I ask that you would come and help us to feel the appropriate weight of it. I pray that any in this room who make light of their own sin would be convicted not to do that anymore, but to be broken hearted because of their failure to love you as they ought and to love each other as they ought. And Lord, in this missions conference, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that you would raise up from this congregation dozens of people who would sense as they never have before, a loosening of their roots in America in order to cross a culture to go to one of those 2,000 people groups that Doug mentioned who have nothing. No radio stations, no bookstores, no churches, no evangelists totally destitute of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and without hope in the world. Oh God, I pray that you'd raise up laborers to go to the hard places, the risky places, the dangerous places. I pray for martyrs, very plain from Revelation 6, 11, that there is a number of martyrs that must come in before the end. You will finish your work with martyrs and they have to come from somewhere and I pray that some would come from this room. So Lord, take this text now, this weighty, awesome, global, universal text and apply it to our hearts for our own salvation and holiness and for the glory of your name among the nations. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, if you don't have your Bible open or you would be willing to reach for one, please go back with me now to Romans chapter 3 and uh, open your Bible. And let me draw an arc from yesterday's message, which probably most of you did not hear, to today's message. The main purpose of God, according to Romans, or according to Psalm 67, where we were yesterday, was that it is the purpose of God to be known and praised and enjoyed and feared among all the peoples of the world as the only true God, the just God, the sovereign God, and the gracious God. That was yesterday's message. His purpose for creating the world and for all that he does in the world is to be known and praised and enjoyed and feared among all the peoples of the world. The ultimate goal of the church is not missions. The ultimate goal of the church, therefore, is worship among the peoples. And missions exists because that worship doesn't. And therefore, 
missions is created by this text or the truth, the reality that this text is describing. This text, verses 9 to 20 of Romans 3, is all about the failure of the world to do that purpose. The purpose of God is to be known and to be praised and to be enjoyed and to be feared among all the peoples. And this text says, everybody fails. Let's just get that in front of us. Verse 9, are we any better than they? Are we Jews any better than the Gentiles, the rest of the world, the Greeks? No, I have already charged that Jews and Greeks, that is everybody, are under sin. Under sin, slave of sin, marked by sin. Not just doing sin, being sinners. And then in verses 10 to 18, he unpacks that with six Old Testament quotes. He begins it and ends it with a statement about how sin relates to God. Look at that in verse 11. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. And look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, sin is not mainly a problem of sex and killing and stealing and lying. That's not the main problem in the world. The main problem in the world is people don't love God. They don't seek God. They don't know Him as well as they know their computer software. They don't praise Him as much as they praise themselves. They don't enjoy Him as much as they enjoy food and sex and leisure. And they don't fear Him as much as they fear the criticism of other people. We are all pagan to the core until grace comes and awakens knowledge and awakens praise and awakens joy and awakens fear. That's what this text is about. It's all about our failure to do what yesterday's message called for the nations to do. So, we are all under sin and we are all without God until something happens. Missions. And it reached America and it reached you. Know how your heart should burn that you could be a means of it reaching others. But let's, before we move into verses 19 to 20, where I want to spend most of our time, say one more thing about verses 9 to 18, which are all about the indictment of our souls and the nations. Notice how universal it is. All. What then? Are we any better than they? I'm at verse 9 again. Not at all for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. There is none righteous. No, not one. Now, think on that for a moment. For the sake of the nations. Of course, we should take it to ourselves and say, well, that must mean me. And that's the place to start. It does mean you, apart from the grace of God through Jesus Christ. But think of it for missions. It means that the diagnosis of the Bible concerning the essential problem with which missions deals is an infallible diagnosis in every people group. 
There's a lot of talk about being culturally attuned and aware and knowing all kinds of things so that mission works and to acclimate yourself there and be sure you know the language and know the culture. And sometimes I think missionaries feel absolutely overwhelmed that they're going to be totally inadequate. And I want to say the main thing is absolutely clear and absolutely the same wherever you go. No missionary, none of you will ever go to any remotest people group anywhere where you do not know exactly the main problem. There won't be a peculiar problem in Japan. There won't be a peculiar problem in Nicaragua or in China or in Indonesia or in Afghanistan. There's no peculiar problem. All the things that are peculiar to those cultures are not the issue. The issue is sin. And Christ came into the world to die for sin. So the diagnosis, the disease, and the cure are universal. And the central thing that every missionary needs to know, he can know from this Bible. And yes, to all missiological studies, but no to paralysis of fear and insecurity that we're not going to know the main thing. Now let's go to verses 19 and 20. This is a remarkable text. Let me read it to you again. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Now those are Jews. Those who are under the law. God gave the law to the Jewish people through Moses. And they had it. They were the guardians of the law. According to chapter 3, verse 1. The oracles of God belong to the Jews first and then later to the world. But first, what the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. And so one of the questions we're going to have to ask is, how is it that the law's address to Israel stops the mouth of the Chinese? or Koreans, or Americans, in every color, and every language, the mouth is stopped because of what the law said to the Jewish people. How does that happen? Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Why not? For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now what I want to do is work backward through that text. There are four levels in this argument. He's arguing for one main point. The mouth of every human being on the face of the earth is stopped. And no objection can be raised to judgment. And every soul is accountable to God. That's his main point in verse 20 or verse 19. And he builds an argument for it. And I want to work through that argument with you and understand it so that we feel the weight and the force that not only in this text are we all sinners, but when we get to judgment, our mouths will be closed. So many people think 
that they have legitimate objections against God in this age. God is in the business in the book of Romans and throughout the history of the world shutting people's mouths. And this is one way. I'll mention two other ways that you've already seen in your trek through Romans. But let's deal with this one first. Let's go mm, first forward, then backward. I'll just mention them. Step number one in the argument, verse 19a, what the law says, it says to those who are under the law of the Jews. Step number two in the argument, 19, at the second half of the verse, so that every mouth will be closed and all the world accountable. Step number three in the argument, verse 20, first half of the verse, because by works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. Step number four in the argument, why? For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, let's go backward. Because we, it's good to understand arguments from the ground up. So he's ended it with a because clause. Let's go backwards and arrive at the therefore clause. So step number four. What does he mean by through the law comes the knowledge of sin? Now, simply you, you might say, well, that's plain as day. It means that when he gives the Ten Commandments, for example, it tells you what sin is. Don't lie and don't steal and don't kill and don't commit adultery. We know right and wrong because we have the law. I don't think that's what this means. Because if you say that's what it means, the argument won't work. Try it. Let's try it. Verse 19 or 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight because the law teaches what is right and wrong. That doesn't work. It's not clear at all why nobody can be justified because the law teaches right and wrong. Somebody would simply say, well... You do what's right and you'll be justified. So that argument won't work. That's wrong, but it won't work. Well, what does it mean? The best way to answer a question like that is not to bring your idea to the text, but to look around in the book of Romans for something just like this and see whether or not it helps. And there is a text very much like this in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. I'll read it to you or you can look at it with me. Romans 7, 7 and 8. You listen to how close it is. What should we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know. Now watch this, this is the parallel. I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, we get a different angle on what it means to know sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We're trying to figure out what that means. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And this is not, in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 7, simply an awareness of right and wrong. This is an arrival of a divine commandment in an unregenerate heart producing covetousness. 
And suddenly he knows covetousness, not in his head on a page, but rising in his heart in rebellion against God. The law stirs up unknown sin in our lives and makes us know it. Know it existentially. Know it in experience. Example, perhaps, at the expense of teenagers. whom I, have, I do have five kids, by the way. You didn't know this. We adopted a little girl five years ago. So we have four boys and five, I mean one. <laughs> we're, not, we're not yet at the nine number or ten. Well, I've got teenagers. Uh, had, still got two, I've got two through. So at the expense of teenagers, suppose my Barnabas, uh, he's 17, he goes to the mailbox and he brings in the mail, and he flips through it to see if there's anything for him, which there is a lot these days, because uh, he's planning to go to college, and so all the colleges in the world send letters to 17-year-olds. And he flips through, nothing for himself. He lays it down, turns away. And then it hit him that at the top of one of the postcards it said, for parents only. And he has this desire to read it. And that desire was not there before. That's a bad desire. That's a bad desire. And that badness wasn't obvious in his mind at all until he saw the law. And the law awakened the badness in his heart. The badness wasn't caused by that sentence. He's bad. If he weren't bad, that little sentence would be like water off a duck's back. He wouldn't feel the slightest desire to read that postcard. The meaning of that text, through the law comes the knowledge of sin, is this. When the law comes to a person who's unregenerate, minus the Holy Spirit, unsaved, its effect is not justification, its effect is not faith, its effect is an awakening of either legalistic strivings or lecherous rebellion. You can oppose the law one of two ways, legalistically or as a libertine. You can reject it, or you can start climbing it to heaven. And in either case, it's exposing your rebellion against God. That's step four in the argument. Now let's build on it with step three. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through law comes the knowledge of sin. Now the argument works. You see how it works? By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight because all the law does is not produce faith under justification, but provoke in unregenerate people rebellion against God, quickening their own awareness of their own sin. And so the argument holds. The law does not justify. It awakens rebellion. 
against God. It exposes sin. It makes us know our sin in our lives. Now, steps one and two in the argument. Verse 19. Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, to Jews, so that every mouth may be closed, stopped, and all the world may become accountable, guilty before God. Now, here's the question. Why does law, as we understand it now, being spoken to Jews, stop the mouth of everybody in the world? Who've never even seen or heard of the law? I think the answer goes something like this. The Jewish people were God's chosen people for 2,000 years. He worked almost uniquely with them. And the law was one of His highest and most precious, good, holy, righteous gifts to them. And if the people who were so honored by God by choosing them, so blessed with so many prophetic voices and so much revelation of His will in the law, if those people cannot be justified by the law, but in fact have risen up against it through legalistic strivings or through idolatry, what hope is there for all the peoples of the world who have not been given this special treatment by God? Is there any reason to believe that anybody anywhere in the world, if they had been given the law, would respond any other way than the Jews have responded to the law and made shipwreck of their destiny by stumbling over the stumbling stone of the law and its end in Jesus Christ? And the answer to that is no, in Paul's mind at least, no, there's no reason to think anybody in the world anywhere would handle the law any better than the Jews, and therefore every mouth is stopped because of the effect of the law in the most privileged people of all, namely condemnation rather than justification. Every mouth is now stopped. That's Paul's argument. Every mouth is stopped. So, the lesson book of Israel is placed alongside two other lesson books that you've seen in the book of Romans. Lesson books that God has put before the nations in order to stop their mouths, remove excuses, and to make them accountable to Him at the last day so that He will rise as judge and be justified and vindicated in His judgment. What are the other two books? Chapter 1, verse 20 I'm sure Skip gave you this some months, whatever it was, ago. Chapter 1, verse 20. Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. You could paraphrase that by saying, so that their mouths will be stopped. Lesson book number one is nature. All over the world, Paul says, there is sufficient evidence in nature that people must thank and glorify God 
And he says all over the world, chapter 1, verse 19, people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so every mouth is stopped and everyone is accountable before God. Lesson book number two is the conscience. Chapter 2, verse 15. They know the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. All over the world, people have a conscience. The law of God isn't just written in the sky. It's not just written on stone. It's not just written in the Bible. It is written on the heart. Everybody knows what God demands in essence, and they all know they fail. You can read that in chapter 1, verse 32 as well, where we know what's right and wrong, and our consciences condemn us. There is not a person in the world with a clear conscience. We can sear it pretty callously so as to deceive ourselves for a season. Alcohol helps a little bit. Drug helps a little bit. Being real busy at work helps. Playing around fast and loose with things helps. Staying busy. and There are ways to keep it from rising to the level of conviction. But everybody in this room has a guilty conscience. And everybody in the world has a conscience that cries out, you are guilty, you're in need of a Redeemer. And so there is a second book that is given to the nations to show them accountable. And the third one today is the lesson book of Israel. Because they are given the law, those who are under the law, Israel is given the law. And the law's effect is not that it can justify, because what it does when it meets a rebellious heart is stir up more opposition and bring sin to the surface instead of producing salvation through justification. Therefore, we learn from Israel, had we been in their case, we too would have responded in the same way. Sometimes you, you look at the people of Israel walking through the wilderness, for example, and God brings manna down, and then 24 hours later, they're grumbling. He gives them water from a rock, and 24 hours later, they're grumbling. He brings quail in from the sea, and 24 hours later, they're grumbling. And you say, well, I sure, if I'd seen a miracle like quail, or a miracle like manna, or a miracle like water, I wouldn't grumble. And two minutes later, you're grumbling about some providence in your life, which God rules, and that's just pure treason. Philippians 2 says, let all things be done without grumbling and questioning. And so we're all guilty. And we all learn from Israel, we learn from conscience, we learn from nature that we are lost. And so, while well, Skip, it's not in my text. I can't stop, though. You wouldn't want me to stop here, would you? Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure he'll pick it up with verse 21. But I'm going to jump and uh, preempt five minutes, three minutes of his message in the coming weeks. Let's go to verse 21 and 22. You need to know that the remedy of this condition, this universal indictment, this mouth-stopping book of nature, book of conscience, book of Israel and law, these indictments of the world that are meant to hold men accountable is not the last word of God. It's not the main Word of God. Rather, the whole book of Romans, oh, it is a great book. 
I can't believe how fast you're going. But you've got to choose different paces. We're in chapter 6, and we've been there for almost three years. I mean, not, we've been in the book for almost three years. And I told my people it would take me at least eight years to get through this book, and I waited 18 years, way too long to get to it. The book of Romans is written to a people for one main reason. Where's Paul going? He's going to Spain. He's going to Spain, and he wants to stop in Rome and be sent from Park Cities to Spain. And so he sends them a letter preached through Skip Ryan so that people will rise up and go to Spain. That's what the book of Romans is all about. He's heading for Spain, and so the question is now, as he sits probably in Corinth and writes this book, what do you need to know at Park Cities and Rome to get behind my mission as I go to Spain? That's what this book is. What do you need to know about missions, about the lostness of people in Spain, and about the missionary enterprise, and what they're to say, and what they're to do? What do you need to know? And he writes, Romans. It's all about missions. They asked me over at Dallas Seminary, whenever I was there, yesterday, the day before, uh, what would you say about a missions class here, about missions? And I say, every class is missions, if it's done right. Every book of the Bible is about missions because it's about God, it's about sin, and it's about the creation of the tension there and the need for missions. So every sermon is a mission sermon. Every Sunday morning worship service is a recruitment time for missions. So let me just close by reading this glorious remedy. Would you, would you hear it? If you're a lost sinner this morning and don't have any peace with God because of this indictment I've just given you, or if you are somebody that God's been loosening your roots and saying, maybe, maybe I should be uh, outside America doing my job somewhere else as a tent maker. Maybe I should be a missionary. Perhaps God will take this indictment of the world and this glorious universal remedy and right now, in this service, in this moment, get you ready to make that move. Verse 21. But now... Apart from the law, there's a glorious word, isn't it? The righteousness of God, there's what we need. We don't have our own. We don't have our own. The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, yes. There was a pointer and a testimony. Which you're talking about, Paul? What are you talking about? The righteousness of God. Is it going to indict me? Is it going to crush me? Is it going to kill me? Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all. Now there's an all to correspond with the all of verses 9 and 10. For all those who believe. So yes, the burden of my message has been that the indictment applies to all the world and the diagnosis and the disease is universal, and none of these missionaries and none of you will ever find a person or a people group where you do not know what the main problem is. It's alienation from God. We don't know Him. We don't praise Him. We don't enjoy Him. We don't fear Him. And therefore, we're lost and doomed to hell. And God sent Jesus Christ into the world to live a new righteousness to die for those sins, to rise again, and then He created missions for us to have the privilege and the glory and the honor 
of taking the glorious news of an alien righteousness, God's own righteousness, given as a gift to all in every single people group who will believe. I tell you, it is the most glorious thing in the world to partner with God in displaying the glory of Christ as our righteousness among the nations. And I commend it to you. Be a sender, be a goer, because your only other alternative is be disobedient. Let's pray. Lord, as we close in song, lift our voices. Celebrate, I pray, your Son among the nations. Take this people, Park Cities, and all these visitors here and make them mighty in the Gospel for the sake of your glory and for the sake of the nations. And all the people said, Amen.